we're in Numbers, and the wilderness is kind of an interesting place. We sing a song called Adon Alam, which means master of the world. And the word Alam in Hebrew literally means hidden. And what God does in the wilderness is he takes us out and he gives us a glimpse behind the curtain. The idea is you go through this world, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on that you can't see. And so what God does is takes you into the wilderness for a while and he pulls the curtain back so you can see some of the things that are normally hidden. One of the characteristics of the wilderness is you don't get to plant crops, you don't get to harvest, you don't get to do any of the normal stuff that you would do to sustain yourself. Your food comes down from the overhead, water comes out of the rock, and it becomes very, very obvious that your sustenance comes from God. That isn't always so obvious in the world. So when Israel finally gets into the land, they're going to have to plant crops, they're going to have to trade, they're going to have to do all the stuff that normal people do to sustain themselves. And, of course, there's always the temptation to believe that you're the one that's sustaining yourself. What the wilderness does is it makes it really clear that you're not. That's why I say God sort of opens the curtain and lets you see what's going on behind it in the wilderness. And then the curtain closes back and you go on about your business in the world. And, of course, what God does is he gives you the written scriptures, which is what we have, so that you can see from the scriptures the lessons of the wilderness. Even as you're going through the world and you're thinking, gee, if I don't do this, I'm not going to make any money, I'm going to starve to death, my children are going to be beggars, you know, all the kind of things that go through everybody's mind. What the scriptures say is, no, I've got you. Just calm down. That takes us to the reading today in the Gospels. The story actually starts in Mark 10:17, which is the... Uh, young man who has great wealth, and I'm going to read it to you. We didn't read it today. We actually picked it up in verse 23, so I'm going to back up to Mark 10, 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So this is one of a series of questions where people come to him and ask that very same question. What do I do to inherit eternal life? And depending on the person, the answer varies. When a lawyer asks him, it's love God, love your neighbor. So there are various answers to this question depending on who's asking it. Verse 18, And Yeshua said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Yeshua, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And then we go into the bit with the camel and the eye of the needle and all that thing. Now, first off, you have to understand the camel and the eye of the needle in the context of the conversation that has gone before. One of the things you should notice is this guy asks Yeshua a question, Yeshua looks on him, and what is Yeshua's reaction to this guy? He loved him. So the thing that Yeshua is telling this guy is because he loves him. In other words, this is something this guy needs to hear and doesn't necessarily want to. Now, the second thing he says is sell all your stuff 
and do what with it? It doesn't say sell all your stuff and give it to me. He doesn't say that. Now, you know, we all have probably a justified suspicion of people in white suits with Rolex watches and gleaming smiles that stand up and say, you need to give your money to me. We all are, you know, justly suspicious of those folks. And notice that Yeshua doesn't say, sell all your stuff and give it to me. He says, sell all your stuff and give it to the poor. There's a difference. And, oh, by the way, one of the things about this congregation that I think everybody knows is nobody here takes a salary, which means that when I tell you something about money, I am not trying to make a boat payment. And there's no problem with a preacher getting paid. That's not what I'm saying. Preachers can get paid, and that's okay. But when they do, there's always sort of this background tension. Is, is he telling me this because I need to hear it, or is he telling me this because he's got a boat payment due? And I assure you, I don't have a boat payment due. So, let's talk about wealth. And let's talk about how to survive the test of abundance. Now, wealth is not bad. And we know that because God uses wealth to motivate us. Go back to the Torah. He says, do all this stuff that I am commanding you to do, and you will have abundance. Your crops won't fail, your animals won't miscarry, your families won't miscarry, everything will be a blessing. He's talking about wealth and abundance. So God uses wealth and abundance to motivate us. And it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever that he would use something bad to motivate us, right? What I want you to do is go out and do all this stuff and you really get blessed in abundance and it's really bad for you. That doesn't make any sense. So wealth has got three functions that I can think of. There may be more, but I can think of three, so we're going to do three. First off, as I said, it's used to motivate. The second thing it's used for is to provide sustenance. So I'm going to take you to Luke 12:22, And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. The idea here is God will take care of you. I don't know if I've told this story recently. I've got a couple of stories I'm going to use that some of you may have heard before, but it's been years since I've used them, and there's no new stories, just new audiences. I graduated from CU, just brand new PhD in engineering, and I was setting out on a consulting career. And quite frankly, it wasn't going well. We were still in the Episcopal Church at that time. And I was doing everything I could think of. I was just, you know, working hard, writing code at night, trying to flog it during the day, trying to get somebody to buy my program. And nothing was working. 
And I had three kids at home at the time. And we came up to the spring, and we had an itinerant guy come through and was teaching prayer and stuff like that. And we started thinking about, in that context, what had happened. And during that entire time, we didn't have a car breakdown. None of the children got sick. We had nothing extra, but we had enough. And all of the things that go through, you know, you need a new battery, you need a new water heater, you know, you got to take the kids to the emergency, none of that happened. You know, I was bawling and squalling and, and just jumping up and down, trying to do everything, and, you know, God, why aren't you blessing me here? And I sort of looked back on it, and he was. Everything was okay, and then my business took off, and everything was fine. Fine from my perspective. I mean, from God's perspective, everything had been fine all the way along. But I came to understand that I didn't have to worry about this stuff. I might might not be comfortable. I might not be settled in my stomach, but it was okay. God was going to take care of me. He knows what you need, and he will give that to you. So the second use of wealth, then, is to provide sustenance. You need this stuff. God knows you need this stuff. You've got to eat. You've got to have clothing on. You've got to have a roof over your head. He knows you need that stuff. He'll get it for you. The third thing that wealth is used for is a test. And that's where we are in today's reading. Because that young man that came up to Yeshua and says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Yeshua looked at him and said, okay, what I want you to do is take all of this stuff that you have sustained yourself with or has sustained you, and I want you to get rid of it. And I want you to depend entirely on me. And the guy goes, gulp. And, "Ah, sorry, that's just too rough there, preacher. And he goes off in in great sadness. So in his case, he fails the test. So the first test is, are you attached to this world? And the question then becomes, what do you get from wealth if you are attached to the world? You get power. People that have a lot of money typically in our society have a lot of power. You can whip people around and get all sorts of stuff done if you've got enough money. Pride. Lots of people keep score by the size of their paycheck or the size of their investment portfolio. Hey, I've got a Mercedes out in the parking lot. I don't. I got a Mercedes out in the parking lot, and I got a Rolex on my wrist, and I got a $2,000 suit, and I am better than you are because I have got all this stuff that you don't have. And the third thing that it provides, which is perhaps the worst, is security. Because if you have wealth and a lot of money in the bank, you tend to think, I'm secure. And what security does is it leads you away from God. And what the wilderness tells you is your security is God. So you have this pull, the wilderness on one side, where God says, I want you to depend on me. And the world on the other side is, I've given you a great portfolio. You're going to be able to afford anything you want. Look at California right now. You've got a natural disaster with a drought. But the wealthy still have their swimming pools filled up. That's security. Doesn't matter what happens around me, I can still get water in there from my swimming pool if I want. It may let my lawn go brown so people don't look at me funny, but I could have a green lawn if I really wanted to because I got the wealth. 
So it provides security. The second test that it provides is do you love your neighbor? Think about that one for a minute. We have been talking in Torah 101 in Midrash about what it means to love your neighbor. And for those of you who weren't there last week, I'll give you about a 30-second synopsis. What loving your neighbor means is doing good to your neighbor. That's what loving him means. It's not an emotion, it's an action. Loving your neighbor is doing good to him. Well, if you have got wealth and means, you have the ability to do good to your neighbor. What is the commandment as you're coming up on the year of release, the sixth year of the seven-year cycle? If your poor brother comes to you and you're six years into the cycle, and in the seventh year all debts are forgiven, and this guy comes to you and says, I need help and I need money, and you know that in the intervening time between when he asks for money and the time his debt is going to be forgiven is just too short for that guy to ever possibly pay you back. What the scripture says is you'll open your hand and you'll lend to him. So that loan, if you will, essentially becomes a gift simply because of time. So the second test of wealth is do you love your neighbor? Because remember we talked in several contexts about Yeshua saying the commandments are love God, love your neighbor. And so you have wealth in your hand and your question is do you really love your neighbor? And how you behave is the answer to that question. And then the third test of wealth is, do you love God? God's word says that generosity leads to plenty. Generosity leads to abundance. The world says, if you subtract from my bank account, I have less in my bank account. That's what mathematics in the world says. What God says is if you subtract from your bank account and you use it for purposes that I say to use it for, you are in fact adding to your wealth. Who are you going to believe? So in that sense, wealth then becomes a test of whether or not you love God or trust God. So three things. Are you attached to the world? Do you love your neighbor? And do you love God? Those are all three tests that abundance brings to you. And what we saw in our reading today is you have a young man who has got abundance and he looks at Yeshua when Yeshua puts him to the test and he sort of goes white and I'm going to suggest he walks off and quits. So now let's come back to the wilderness. I'm saying that God opens up the curtain and one of the things he shows you is the principle of sowing and reaping. And we've taught this lots and lots of times, and I'm going to go over it sort of briefly. When you sow, you sow expecting a crop. Nobody goes out and plants corn and says, boy, I'm going to plant corn, and I just don't care what happens here. doesn't matter to me. I'm just planting corn because God says to plant corn and whatever, you know, birds eat it. Doesn't, doesn't matter to me. No, that's nonsense. Now, how many people have you heard in the Sunday church that says, well, you can't give to get? Have you heard that one? I used to hear it all the time. That's pious nonsense. That's them wanting to look all pious and godly and so forth. It's nonsense. Nobody plants not expecting a crop. And God says if you plant, you'll get a crop. So why would you not give with the expectation that you're going to get a return? That's what the word says. 
So don't fall for this pious nonsense. Also, I will suggest that that attitude is a rationale for failure. In other words, you're not really understanding the Word of God, and you're not really believing it, so what you've done is you've sort of left yourself an escape hatch. I didn't plant expecting a crop, and if the crop fails, then my faith is still intact, because I really didn't expect it to work. I have lots of people that pray that way. They pray leaving themselves an escape hatch in case it doesn't work. Another way to say it is you're pulling your punches. Anybody ever read Don Quixote? There's a scene in there that I'll never forget. Don Quixote is slightly mad in a charming sort of way. And so he's decided to go off and become a knight errant. And he's going to ride through the countryside slaying dragons, rescuing maidens, all that kind of good stuff. And he makes himself a helmet out of cardboard. And he takes the helmet out of cardboard and he takes his wooden sword and swacks it. And of course, the cardboard helmet crumbles. So he makes himself another helmet out of cardboard. And this time he very carefully does not test it because he doesn't want it to fail. And he goes off riding off into the sunset with his cardboard helmet, which is no better than the first cardboard helmet, but this one he hasn't tested, so he trusts it. How many people pray that way? They're not going to really test their cardboard helmet, so what they do is they pull their punches in their prayers. I'm not giving to get here, God. I'm just giving because I really want to be, and that's nonsense. Step up and do what the Word says, expecting that you're going to get the results the Word says you're going to get. Again, another one of my stories. Some of you who have been here a long time have heard this. When I was a young lieutenant, I was in a parachute battalion, airborne battalion, and we had to jump at least once a month in order to get... I never have understood skydiving. I mean, you have a perfectly good airplane, and why in the world would you jump out of it if somebody's not paying you to do that? Well, I mean, you know, I got paid to do it, so I had to do it, and I did it, and, but I never really liked it. Anyway, in military jumping, you're at 1,000 feet, and you have a parachute that you can't steer, or at least not very well, and you got all this stuff on, so it is really not a pleasant experience. So what you do is on the day you're going to jump, you get up at 4 or 5 in the morning, you go in and you get breakfast, and then you go to the rigging shed. And they've got this whole table laid out with parachutes, and you walk up and somebody hands you one of them. You don't get to choose it. You don't get to pack it yourself. And furthermore, it was packed by guys that have about the same motivation that you have. I'm serious. So you take this parachute, and you schlep it around until it's time to get on the airplane. they got this C-130 idling on there, and you, and you get your you know, jump master checks and make sure that you got all your straps on, and you got all that kind of stuff organized. And you get on the airplane, and you, you know, C-130 goes boom, 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 up into the sky, and you're flying around, and all of a sudden they open the doors, and then it starts to get kind of real. Now, I can say at 5 o'clock in the morning when I'm in the mess hall eating my breakfast, I have faith in that parachute. I have faith that when I jump out of there, that parachute's going to land me gently on the ground. I have great faith in the manufacturer of that parachute. I have great faith in the guy that put that thing together and rigged it up. I have great faith in the jump master. 
But when the door opens and you're standing in the door at the head of your stick and you're watching North Carolina go below you at a thousand feet, Jumpmaster taps you on the butt and you step out the door, that's when you have faith. That's when you have faith. All the rest of the stuff that started at five o'clock in the morning, that's not faith. That's talking yourself into something. But when you step out over North Carolina at a thousand feet, then you have faith. And what I will suggest to you is wealth is the same way. You can say all you want about your faith, and you can say all you want about trusting God, but unless you are willing to put your money where your faith is, you don't have any. Now, there's two kinds of giving. Kind number one is what I call planned giving. That's a tithe. That's the offerings at feasts. That's commanded. That comes off the top. And, oh, by the way, if it doesn't come off the top, then you have a problem with faith. There are people who wait till the end of whatever their pay period is and says, if I got the tithe left over, I'll give it. No, 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 no. You give it off the top. That's stepping out of the airplane. So that's planned giving. That's, as I say, commanded. We do expect you to tithe because you need to tithe. That's something you need to do for you. Where you do that is up to you. So that's planned giving, if you will. The second kind is unplanned giving. And I will gently suggest that that's probably more important because that's the giving that determines whether or not you love your neighbor. That's the giving that happens when your neighbor comes up to you and says, I need help. That's not something you can plan for. And I will suggest that that's the harder test and that's the more important test. The question there is, are you going to withhold your hand or are you going to trust God and are you going to sow into your neighbor's life? Now, one of the things I get asked a lot is, well, gee, I give of my time. Does that count? Well, sure it counts. Go back to sowing and reaping. You plant what you want to harvest. So you don't plant corn hoping you're going to get cucumbers. It doesn't work that way. So if you want abundance money, what do you plant? Money. If you want abundance in time, what do you plant? Time. You plant what you want to reap. And I can't tell you the number of times I have gone through a week wondering how I was going to get everything done. And I really don't have time to spend with God studying the scriptures because I got too much to do. And what I have learned over the years is if I spend time studying the scriptures and I spend time with God, the rest of the stuff will work out and I will miraculously have enough time to do all the stuff that I didn't think I was going to have enough time to do. I have planted time and I have reaped time. It's the same thing with money or physical stuff. It doesn't have to be money. You know, it can be in-kind stuff. You plant what you expect to reap. It's simple. The other thing to understand, and this goes with the harvest, is you plant now and you harvest later. You don't harvest the same day you plant. It doesn't work that way. So as you're going through life, planting, planting money, planting time, planting whatever it is you're planting, expect that you will get it back. You will but expect that there's going to be a delay. That's the way it works. 
And I don't care how many preachers have stood up in front of you and given these preacher stories that they give. The guy gave his last quarter into the offering plate and he went right out and he got a job that afternoon. I'm sure that sometimes happens, but a lot of that's just preacher stories. There is going to be a delay between planting and reaping. And so what do you need to do in the time between you planted here and you expect to reap there? What do you do in between? You tend the garden. How do you do that? In the natural, you've got to water it, you've got to pull weeds, you've got to you know, keep the rabbits out of it, all that kind of stuff, right? How do you do that spiritually? There's an analogy here. I will suggest that you declare into it. There's a difference between a prayer and a declaration. Two different words. They're spelled differently. You can tell they're not the same, right? So there's a difference between a prayer and a declaration. A prayer is planting seed. A declaration is defending the seed. So you plant your seed, you give your money, you give your time, whatever you're giving, and then you start declaring and say, Father, I have given. Your word says that I can expect a hundredfold harvest. So, Father, I am saying that that seed that I have planted is going to generate a harvest. That's defending the garden. You're not replanting the seed. You did that at the beginning. What you're doing is you're defending that seed that you have planted. And things are going to come against you. In other words, you're going to plant here, and then you're going to have a bill for, in my case, we just have a new alternator in our car. And it turns out that in Utah, finding somebody to fix an alternator on a Sunday is not easy. In fact, it's not possible. I pulled into an auto zone in Brigham City, Utah, and asked the clerk there, where can I find somebody to fix my alternator? She says, you can't. And so she went and finally called her boyfriend, who was a mechanic. And the guy came in on a Sunday afternoon, and I had to buy a pair of jack stands. So we jacked it up, and we started taking it apart. And he pulled the wheel, and he was in there. And we finally looked at it and says, you know, even if we get that thing unbolted, we're not going to be able to get it out of there. And he said, I'm glad you said that, because I was going to keep going. And we were probably going to have the whole front end of the car laying in the parking lot on a Sunday afternoon, and that was probably not a good idea. But the point is, he came, he spent easily two hours, perhaps more, getting grease up to his armpits, working on my car, and at the end of it he says, no charge. Tried to pay him. He said, no, he was planting seeds. And I pray, and I will say right now, that he's going to get a harvest for those seeds that he planted. And he will. So I spent the night in a motel. And then the next day, I discovered on that car, in order to replace the alternator, you got to pull the front axle. So a $150 alternator blossomed into a $750 bill plus a hotel room. So I wound up about $1,000 out of pocket for an alternator. That's weeds in my garden. So what I do is I come back and I say, God, I have planted, I have sown, I have given generously, and I am expecting a return and quit worrying about it. So understand that generosity is commanded, and the reason it's commanded is because it's for your own good. It's not that God needs your money. It's not that this church needs your money. We don't. You need to give because it's an expression of your trust in God. It's an expression that you realize that your wealth is not here in this world. Your wealth is in the next and it's an expression of loving your neighbor. So wealth ties into all of that. 
And how you use your wealth is perhaps the most difficult test in Scripture. It's really hard. And so we have all of these examples in Scripture of people either failing or passing that test. So go thou out and plant some seeds. Let us shine.